We're going to talk about the topic of surrender. And we will jump around a little bit more from there to a couple of other places, but for the most part in Luke chapter 5. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's Holy Spirit to speak to us from his scripture. Thank you, Lord. Lord, Father, we just thank you for the day, Lord, for the weather, and Lord, just your kindness towards us, Lord, to allow us to worship in public in this nation, Father, to draw near to you, and Lord, just to seek your favor as we look at the word of God, speak to our hearts, and Lord, let your spirit have your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Surrender, from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. How much of your life have you surrendered to the Lord? Let's see. Sunday morning, you're all sitting in church, you're clothed and saying, all of it, everything, 100%, right? Surrendered your If not, you'd still be home in bed if you hadn't surrendered everything. If only surrendering to the Lord was as easy as saying, I surrender all, or singing, I surrender all, if it had just happened automatically. Humans are a good deal more complicated than that, unfortunately. Chances are that there are things in your life that you believe you have surrendered to the Lord that maybe you haven't. It's possible. Just because I sing, I worship you, O Lord, doesn't mean I'm actually worshiping, does it? Thinking about things, I, I could be thinking about any number of things while I'm singing worship. And it would be interesting, though, if, you know, if people would actually automatically involuntarily say, what they were actually, I am sinning now. You know, that would make interacting with people a lot more interesting, maybe even productive. I kind of imagine that's something like what it's going to be like at the white throne judgment, you know, and people, because you can't lie in the presence of that is if people speak at all in the presence of God. My life is made up of millions of little moments and situations. And, you know, I'd like to suggest to you that our ability to surrender to the Lord is more complicated, a little or a lot, depending on a different day, one day to the next, a whole bunch of things. Things like a sincere desire to be surrendered to Christ, some understanding of what that really means in practical terms, a depth of character, it's a little more complicated, a depth of character to be able to hand myself over. We all know people that say, They want to follow the Lord, but they just don't seem to be able to get around to it. Tragic as that is. What does it mean? And Jesus gives us some great examples in the scripture. In Matthew chapter 13, in the parable of the sower, Jesus does an amazing thing, as usual. Um, He shares this parable with a multitude. It's about the word of God and the hearts of people and their ability to surrender themselves to God's purpose of being fruitful. Okay? to be connected in the way that that he intends. There are four different examples in the parable of the sower. First one doesn't even hear the word of God, just right over his head. Never even happened. The second, third, and fourth all hear the word of God, but only the fourth example, the seed that falls on good ground, is, is fruitful. What happened to the second and third examples? What happens? Well, if you ask somebody that are in that particular situation, they would probably go on and on for some time explaining about the complex issues of their life, their situation, the emotional instability, the factors of other people around them uh, in their lives combined with their early childhood memories that have conspired against them to inhibit their ability to be the person that God wanted them to be. In Matthew 13, 20, Jesus says, He who received 
the seed on stony places. This is he who hears the word immediately, receives it with joy. Yet while he has no root in himself, he endures only for a while. For when tribulation and persecution arises, he immediately stumbles. God says, no root in himself. Concerning the third example, the seed planted among thorns. I'm sure your average person would cite their need to provide for their family and have financial security, be that financial anchor, and the demands on the person's spiritual, emotional, material, especially the material demands, the suffocating responsibilities weighing upon them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and how there, there are never enough hours in the day to actually spend that time with the Lord that they would like to, to spend. God sees things so much simpler than we do. In Matthew thirteen twenty two, he says, The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word of God. Now, the end of such a person is going to be regrettable. But the Lord doesn't put these things in the scripture for no reason, does he? They're here for a purpose, just like uh, it says in Romans 15, 4. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and the comfort of the scripture might have hope. In other words, there is something that we need to learn from this parable, something that we can do in the issue. God wants us to recognize who we are and where we are to take responsibility for our situation and to do, even if your situation is not entirely your fault. For many of you, the difficulties of your life, there there are people outside of you that are somewhat responsible. But, folks, we all have to take responsibility for where we are. He wants us to be willing to be engaged with him to do what we can do in the situation to find a way to hand ourselves over and to be connected to the Lord on his terms. And this is very important. The world that we live in, folks, is chock full of people that want to have a relationship with God on their terms. The only kind of relationship that God offers to anyone is the relationship where he's God and you're you. And that's the only way it works. Everybody has what they think is a better idea. God is looking for us to surrender to him unconditionally, to unconditionally hand ourselves over. Fortunately for you and I, he's very, very patient. You know, when we first gave our lives to Christ, personally, I didn't know much about, I didn't know much about being saved or having a relationship with God. I didn't, about surrendering to God. I didn't know much about anything for that as I look back upon it now. At the time, of course, I thought of myself as a highly intelligent individual. I couldn't have been more impressed with myself if I'd tried. But fortunately for us, God has a plan. He has a custom-tailored plan to our situation. One step at a time, giving my life to Christ, he begins to lead me through this life to work in my heart and in my mind, sometimes through blessing, sometimes through difficult situations where I get to choose one situation at a time. Am I going to surrender to the Lord or am I going to take this thing in my own hands and work it out? And what's fascinating to watch, it's harder to see in yourself, but when you're dealing with other people, you can see when they're saying, 
Oh, yes, I'm going to let God handle this as they wrestle with it themselves. You said you're going to let God do that? Yeah, I'm going to let him do it. Well, you know, and you want to ask him, what are you doing? When you do that yourself, it's, it's more difficult to see. No, I really am trying to let God do it. God has a plan. You know, it's interesting. It sort of reminds me of the situation following Christ's baptism in the Jordan River with with, uh, John the Baptist. Came up out of the water and immediately the spirit drove him away into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And he fasted. And the outcome of that situation was that Jesus surrendered himself to the word of God. And to the Father's plan. And aren't you glad that he did? Today I want to talk to you about the life of Simon Peter, the Apostle Peter. Pretty fascinating guy, all in all. Lots to offer us, both in his life example, and also in the things which the Holy Spirit used him to write that we have in in the Scripture, in First and Second Peter. I'd like to look at a little at the beginning of his time with Jesus from the Gospel. Mostly from Luke chapter 5, but actually there's a little section in the Gospel of John as well. In the Gospels of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1, they both speak of Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, finding Simon and his brother Andrew and challenging them to follow him. We know from the Gospel of John chapter 1 that Peter and Andrew had met Jesus before they met him in Galilee, and probably the Apostle John as well. So, John chapter 1, verse 40 through 42, Jesus at the Jordan. In John chapter 1, verse 40, it says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, He said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Now, this encounter between Andrew and Peter and Jesus takes place sometime following the baptism of Jesus by John, also following the temptation of Christ, the 40 days that he was in the wilderness being tempted. But directly following that, he meets Andrew Peter, probably the Apostle John, and then Philip and Nathaniel, all recorded in the first chapter of the Gospel of John there. And the reason that Andrew and and John were motivated to begin following Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist identifies Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And these guys, they got the Messiah. This guy's the Messiah. First thing Andrew does, goes and finds his brother, Simon, it's reasonable for us to assume, I think here, that Andrew and Simon were both there because of the ministry of John the Baptist. I mean, they were out at the Jordan. They're in the middle of nowhere. There's really no other good reason. They weren't fishing. And so they're out there because of the ministry of John the Baptist. And again, if that's true, it would indicate that there is some serious interest in them for the things of God. They're seeking after the Lord. And following John around in the wilderness gives us some indication 
that they had an idea of how to go about it. They're not following some crazy prophet. They're following a legitimate prophet of God in the wilderness, seeking, and God's using this opportunity to draw them. Andrew tells his brother Simon, we have found the Messiah. This is crazy. The Messiah, the guy we've been waiting for for 5,000 years. He's here. We found him. And which translated means the Christ, Savior of the world. Simon doesn't respond there in John. Doesn't say anything. No telling what he thought. But he must have had some serious interest or he wouldn't have gone with Andrew to begin with. Andrew brings Simon to Jesus. Jesus just looks at him. You are Simon, son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated as stone. Now, the word Cephas is Aramaic for Peter. All of these people spoke Aramaic, folks. In the first century, in Judea, in Galilee, they all spoke Aramaic. It's a, it's a um, Hebraic language. It's related to, uh, it's really the language they got stuck with after the Babylonian captivity. When they came back, most of those people spoke, got that language when they were in Babylon or in Assyria, and they spoke um, Aramaic. Now, even though they spoke Aramaic, don't ever let anybody tell you that the New Testament was written in Aramaic. Not true. The New Testament was written originally in Greek because the whole Roman world communicated in the Greek language. And so they wanted to communicate with everybody. They wrote it in Greek. And this was very awkward for some of, some of them, like the, the Apostle John, as he wrote his gospel in the Greek language, not his first language. And they say, Greek scholars will tell you, that it's awkward because he doesn't really understand syntax. Now, we're going to be in Luke in a minute. Luke spoke Greek. And he was very familiar with Greek. And the language, as he uses it and writes it in the gospel, is much, much plainer and cleaner. It's interesting also, just as a side note, sometimes you'll go through parallel passages in the gospels, like between Mark and Matthew. And you'll find that, like, for instance, Sermon on the Mount. And you'll say, well, why in the inspired, inerrant word of God does Jesus use different words in this gospel than in this gospel? How is that possible? It's the same situation. Why would it be recorded with different words in one gospel than the other? And the reason is this. Jesus spoke in Aramaic. Jesus did not speak in Greek. And so when Matthew or Mark transcribed Jesus' words by the Holy Spirit down in the particular language, the Holy Spirit will use their memory of it slightly different than the other person's to bring out particular issues that need to be addressed. So their spirit has a purpose. The difference in the words are because of the translating into the original Greek language, but it's something God puts to use for our benefit in a powerful way. So he gives him his name. Pretty impressive beginning to have Jesus change your name the first time you meet him. And what does that mean? How did this affect Peter? What did he think of his new name? Rock, wow. Um, more importantly, what did he think of Jesus? Is this Jesus the Messiah? Great. I met the Messiah. What do you do with that? It's not actually, you know, it's not like there's an instruction booklet for how to deal with this God. Oh, wait, there is. There is an instruction booklet. The Bible teaches us to use wisdom, to follow him. These men, they all had responsibilities, folks. They had a business they have partners. Simon had a family. He's got a wife. He's got a mother-in-law who's going to be getting sick very soon. Um, so as the weather 
They went to the wedding at Cana, took place shortly after that in the Gospel of John. They may have, they probably would have gone. They were invited. John 2, 2 tells us Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So they may have all been there. But what had really happened to Peter? What happened to him other than getting a new name? Obviously, he was involved. They were all probably doing a lot of thinking and talking and listening to Jesus. Good thing to do. It sort of reminds me of what happened to Jesus' mom, Mary, when Jesus was born. All these shepherds showed up, raving about seeing angels all over in the sky, singing. And in, in Luke 2.19, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And I imagine that the disciples are doing a lot of the same, just thinking about the things that Jesus says, the things that happen. They saw some miracles. Obviously, at the wedding at Cana, Jesus turns water into wine. Then they all, I'm sure, had questions about what the Lord was going to do and what part, if any, they were going to play in God's work in Israel. They may have traveled to Nazareth, where Jesus spoke in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and actually Jesus identifies himself as the Messiah in the synagogue in Nazareth by quoting Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. He says, in your hearing this day, this scripture is fulfilled. In other words, I am the Messiah. And then they tried to kill him. Not too long after that, they tried to throw him off the the brow of the hill there in Nazareth. But at some point, folks, right around here, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they all wound up back in Galilee, in Capernaum, working their fishing business, going about their daily routine of doing, taking care of their business. And that's really where we want to pick up here in Luke chapter 5, as Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee, following the miracle that he did in Cana and the stop in Nazareth. The account in Luke chapter 5 is roughly parallel to Mark chapter 1, Matthew chapter 4. If you look at a harmony of the Gospels, a harmony of the Gospels is a book that shows you what events take place chronologically across all four Gospels. Some of those only do three but some of them have John included, all four Gospels, and you can go through and see a chronology. Some Bibles actually have a harmony of the Gospels in the back. Uh, the Thompson Chain reference does, I think. But if you look at that, you'll find something interesting. And what they will tell you is that the first half of Luke chapter 5 should actually be following Luke chapter 4, verse 30. So the first half of Luke 5 should be in the middle of chapter 4. That's what they say. Did it really happen that way? I wasn't there. I really can't tell you for sure. I know it happened. I know it took place. I've got it in the scripture. As to exactly when things transpire, I can't honestly say. Jesus with the multitude. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. So it was that as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them, and they were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little from the land. He sat down, and he taught the multitudes from the boat. The multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God. Folks, the Greek language actually says, much more descriptive, that they were laying upon him. They were, they were all over him, wanting to hear the word of God. You know, the, it never fails to amaze me 
how people respond when they actually hear the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus, folks, are entirely different and distinct from the teaching of any other person that has ever spoken to the people of this world. Entirely different. The words of the prophets have a similar tone and weight. The prophets are speaking on behalf of another. They have been entrusted with the authority of another, the Father's authority by the Holy Spirit as he directs them. But the words of Jesus, while still being from the Father, at the same time are uniquely his own. And I imagine the people had a sense of this as they listened to him. In Matthew 7, 28, at the uh, close of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, And it was so that when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. They were beside themselves. They were amazed at the things which he had said. Or, a great example, the temple guards sent to arrest Jesus in John chapter 7. And they returned back empty-handed and the officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Really crazy. And, and the really, honestly, the amazing thing is that you can get that when you read the Scripture, when you open the Scripture and you read the words of God. The Holy Spirit will speak to you in such a way. When you hear a person quote the words of Jesus in Scripture, it's amazing. In Revelation 19.10, it tells us the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And when Jesus speaks the word he's received from the Father, it is like you have been brought into that fellowship between the Father and Jesus, right out of John chapter 17. No man ever spoke like this man. And the cool thing for us is that he wants to speak to us today. He wants to speak to me. He wants to speak to you. He wants to instruct us. He wants to address the issues that we're dealing with. He wants us to listen. He wants us, he wants us to surrender to him. Not every person will receive it. Only those people to whom the Spirit of God is speaking. John 6.63, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So, not terribly shocking that the crowds of people were falling all over themselves for an opportunity to hear the words of Jesus. And, you know, if, if that's not enough... Uh, if that's not impressive, Jesus seems to know a little bit about the science of acoustics as well. He understands that if you project a sound over still water, that it has a pro, pro, uh, it amplifies the sound. So if he gets away from people over the water a little bit, it's, he's not going to have to use his voice so much. Pretty amazing. The Lake of Gennesaret uh, is the Sea of Galilee. It's also called by John the Sea of Tiberias. It's all the same place. Uh, it's a little lake in, in northern Israel, seven miles wide, 14 miles long. That's the place. Uh, Luke always refers to it as a lake. And uh, John always refers to it as the Sea of Tiberias. Maybe have something to do with the fact that by the time John wrote his gospel, Israel was pretty messed up. Jerusalem was, was uh, a mess by 90 A.D., unfortunately. The temple had been destroyed and the Romans had uh, pretty much made a mess out of the entire nation. He noticed the boats, got into Simon's boat, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore, and then he taught them. Unfortunately, we don't have any account 
of exactly what he taught the people on this occasion. Whatever it was, Simon Peter's sitting there with the front row. He's sitting in the boat right behind Jesus, listening to every word he says. And when he when he'd finished, he had a plan for Simon and his friends. Wouldn't you know it? Jesus with the fishermen, verses four through seven. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, "Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch." But, but contrast. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Peter's going to do him a favor. Uh, when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. So Jesus had an idea. He said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch of of fish, of course. They wouldn't catch money until about Matthew 17. Peter doesn't seem to be overly shy about expressing his opinion. You know, um, even though he doesn't know Jesus too well at this point, if your close friends or your family come to you with a crazy idea, you're going to tell them it's crazy. Your brother comes to you and says, I have this idea. You're crazy. Stop that. Somebody that's just an acquaintance, somebody that you may be more likely to be polite to them, especially if they're supposed to be the Messiah. You're not going to be real polite. I think Peter is being polite to Jesus here. But still, he wants him to know. Peter's never shy about sharing his opinion. Master, we worked all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, we'll let down the net. Not exactly under protest, but... I'm sure he wasn't too enthusiastic. I mean, it's never encouraging to work all night and make nothing for your trouble. You know, he wasn't happy about that. Anyway, come on, he's a fisherman. He knows when to fish and where the good spots are. I mean, this is his living. He knows about this stuff. Have you ever had anybody give you advice on how to do your job? Other than your husband or wife, they're supposed to. Um, It's interesting how many people feel like they have insight and understanding about things that they have never done. must be part of the human condition. I'm sure Peter had received advice about fishing before, but never quite like this. When Jesus directs you to do something, folks, there's a really good reason you should do it. Maybe and especially if you don't like what he's suggesting, you know. It's like uh, the advice of uh, his mother, Mary, at the wedding at Cana, she goes up to the people who are working and helping out at the wedding, and she says, to, she points to Jesus, whatever he tells you, do it. Good advice. Good advice. Um, have you ever had the Lord tell you to do something that you didn't really want to do? Not me. I would, hey, I would never. I would, okay, I'll tell you about it. Um, some years ago, I received a message in my box in the front office here. And it was from somebody at a local hospital, mental hospital. It was from a lady. And they wanted someone to come over and teach a Bible study. And for whatever reason, I, that day I thought I was really busy. I didn't have time to go over there. I mean, it's, it's a whole mile away. I thought, you know, my wife teaches women. I'll have her go over and do a Bible study for this lady. That's delegate. That's the way. I'll do that. So I did. I asked my wife. I told her about it. 
Week went by. My wife never made it over there. She probably thought she was busy too. And uh, I got another message in my box. And I, why, why come, would somebody come over and teach a Bible? I can't, why do I keep getting this message? I can't believe this. Someone had given this lady a Bible. And in the back of the Bible, there was a phone number of Diane Leach's mother, Ruby. And so the lady called Ruby Hauser and wanted to know if somebody could do a Bible. She directed her to the church. So she started calling the church, asking if someone could. How does that work? I don't know, but it, it happened. I told my wife again, honey, go over and do a Bible study for this lady. You know, she's at this hospital over here. It's, come on in and take care of it. Another week went by. So I'm sitting in the Tuesday morning staff meeting with Pastor X. We're all sitting there, all the whole church staff. And Xavier is going through his messages. He's got all these messages. And, hmm, some lady over at this hospital wants somebody to go over and do a Bible study. Tony, why don't you go over there and do a Bible study? Yes, sir. I'm, I was just going. I was going. I was going to. Man. And uh, absolutely, yes. And uh, I'm on my way over there. You know, I can't believe that I couldn't get anybody to come over here and do this. It's not that far. Simple Bible study. So I went there, got in the office, finally found this little old lady, the sweetest little old lady you ever met in your life. You know, she was just, she was gorgeous. And I went in and we went through the first chapter of the gospel. And I kid you not, uh, Gospel of John. I felt like the Lord was sitting there with us. I was just sitting there talking to her and it, it was just amazing. It really was amazing. And I uh, went through the first chapter of John, and um, she was so appreciative. She was about to be released. She was so appreciative that it was embarrassing. She was so grateful. And uh, so I left. I got up to leave, and there's like a park in the middle of this the, the hospital over there. And I just had to stop in the middle of the park, you know? And I was like... Lord, what is the matter with me? What is the matter with me? The things that you want to bless me with are the things that I try to avoid. I don't get it. The really good thing about coming face to face with your own ignorance or your own foolishness is that you realize who you really are. You know, we always try to present the best side of ourselves to other people. I would really like all of you to think that I am a much better person than I am. I would like that. Whenever I meet anybody, I want them to think I am nicer and better and smarter and even better looking than I actually am. I would like people to think that well of me. It's my flesh. What happens is, in presenting this positive aspect of myself, I kind of get caught up in the wake. I kind of start believing that I am that better person that I would like people to think I am. And then when I do something that really is a part of my nature, I'm shocked. How could I do that? How could I think like that? When you come into the presence of God, you are confronted with who you really are. You get it. You don't kind of, sort of, get it. You get it. I'm Acts 3D. You get it. You see it. And this, folks, this is about to happen to Simon Peter. He has some idea who Jesus is. 
Andrew says he's the Messiah. He probably believes that, even if he may not understand exactly what that entails. Jesus looks like a normal guy. He doesn't glow in the dark or anything. Isaiah 53 says he has no form or comeliness. When we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. People had trouble with that. Jesus looked like anybody. He's the Messiah. What? That guy? Where's he from? Nazareth? You're kidding. Really? But then they heard him speak. From that moment, folks, from the moment that Peter drops the net into the water, everything is going to change forever for the rest of his life and a long, long time after that. In verse 6, when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and the net was breaking so that they signaled their partners from the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. I imagine that all this happened pretty quickly. Nets hit the water, fish hit the nets, nets start to break. They signal for everybody, come on, get the boat out here. They get it. They're filling them up. They fill them. It was too far for them to yell. They had to signal, so they were quite a ways off the shore. Both boats began to sink. What on earth is going on here? Folks, it's not about the fish. It's not about the boats. Not even entirely about Simon Peter. It's about the Lord revealing himself. God revealing himself. In verse 8, Jesus with his disciple. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And so when they had brought their boats to the land, they forsook all and they followed him. Peter puts it together. He puts it together. May not be the smartest guy in the world, but this is his area. He knows something about fishing. You see, Jesus did this. He didn't, he didn't guess. It wasn't a lucky hunch or a coincidence where the fish were. Jesus did this for a purpose. Jesus is able, at the direction of his Father, with the help of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is able to exercise authority over the fish of this world. And when Simon Peter saw it, it probably took a second to sink in. The net started to break. He thought, oh, bad netter. There's a lot of fish down. There's a lot of fish. You know, we, we need help, guys. Come out. Okay, let's get them in the boat. Get them in the boat. Okay, get, get their keep. they keep. And the boat starts taking on water. The boat is sinking. The boat is full of fish and sinking. Put yourself in that situation. That's crazy. All of those guys are looking at each other, trying to figure it out. And Peter figures it out. It's Jesus. He did it. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, the prophet Isaiah sees Jesus. He says, So I said, Woe is me, I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Before this situation, Peter was calling Jesus Master. The Greek word is epistatis, and it means like boss or overseer. 
Okay? Here in verse 8, Peter calls Jesus Lord. Kurios. The word kurios, the word is, is used in the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, is interchanged for God throughout the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. Not the word for Yahweh, but the word for God in the Old Testament, for Elohim, the word uh, kurios. And that's what Peter calls Jesus. And from now on, folks, let me tell you, Peter will do anything that Jesus says as best as he is able. He has figured it out. Jesus is his Lord. He understands. He has unconditionally surrendered. He doesn't need to think about it. He doesn't need to sort it out or to understand it in his thought. He knows. And no person is ever going to persuade him otherwise because he has seen the truth. And Jesus is that truth. Folks, when you find yourself in the presence of God, you see who you really are. You're overwhelmed with seeing the Lord, but also painfully aware that you don't belong in his presence. You see your sin for what it is. And it's not that he saw the miracle. That's not the issue. Peter has heard from the Lord. God has spoken to him in his native language. God has spoken to him and he has surrendered, unconditionally surrendered. In verse 9, he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. To give you an idea of just how amazed and freaked out these guys were, the word for amazed there, or astonished, actually, uh, A.T. Robertson, the Greek scholar, says, wonder held them around. They were, they were gripped by astonishment. They were beside themselves looking at the situation. Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. They were in a state of disbelief. They're trying, trying just to take it in. To come into direct contact with who God really is has got to be a really overwhelming experience. In Psalm 2, verse 11, it says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And you know, that's what happens, folks, when you're in a situation and you know that the Lord is there. I used to go to a Pentecostal church when I first got saved, like a real Pentecostal church, and uh, <laughs> kind of crazy. A lot of wonderful people, a lot of people who love Jesus, but were unfortunately not real clear on 1 Corinthians. Uh, 12 through 14, and you know what it really says about how we conduct ourselves in the Church of Christ, decently and in order. And uh, people were forever having words from the Lord and talking in tongues and all kinds of stuff all the time. And um, But every once in a while, someone would offer a word in prophecy and they would begin to speak and you're sitting there just normal and you would just, the hair on the back of your neck would stand up because you would know that's the Lord. It would just blow your mind. You know, that, that's not somebody who likes the sound of their own voice. That's a word from the Lord. It's an amazing thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a thing that God does. He speaks through people. And he will speak to us. Verse 11, when they had brought their boats to the, to the land, they forsook all and they followed him. 
They just walked away. They forsook all and they followed him. Luke 14, 3 says, Likewise, whoever, whosoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. doesn't say you probably shouldn't be. It's maybe not a good idea. You cannot be my disciple if you will not forsake all that you have. Now, I will forsake anything that the Lord wants me to forsake. I'm, I say that. I don't know how my wife feels about that, you know. Honey, we got to give up the house. What? Um, she's up there. Okay. Um, <laughs> she's still smiling. It's okay. But seriously, if the Lord wants me to hand over things, stuff, time, energy, my life in one aspect or another, he's going to provide wisdom for getting it done. He's not going to create a huge division in my marriage over it. He's going to provide wisdom to get it done. I have to understand that he wants me to do X, Y, and Z. And he's going to bear witness in the scripture with wise counsel. And it's going to be evident that it's according to his, his leading. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul talks about people remaining in the state in which they were called, in the condition they were called. And he talks specifically about if you're called as a married person, don't walk away from your marriage. You're married. God called you as a married person. Stay married. Serve God. And then he goes on about slaves and freedmen. If you're called as a free person, great. If you're called as a slave, you know, and you can find a way to become free, to buy your, your free, go do so. But you're the Lord's servant in whatsoever estate you've been called. Today, you are the Lord's servant in whatever estate you are. Well, should I quit my job and move to India? Well, not unless God specifically and directly tells you and leads you to do so. He intends to lead you and to use you where you are. God needs people in Pasadena to preach the gospel, to be examples and witnesses. And for all I know, that may, there may be some people here today who need to go somewhere else. But if you're listening, the Lord will tell you. He will direct you and guide you. It will not be contrary to his word. It will not be crazy. It will be according to his spirit. In Romans 6.16, it says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether in sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? And that word, to whom you present yourself, to whom you surrender yourself, it's the Greek word parastime. And what it really means is to place a person or a thing at one's disposal. That's what I want to do. I want to put myself at the Lord's disposal. Whether I'm a housewife at home caring for my children and wiping their noses and feeding and caring for them, putting band-aids on scraped knees, or I'm at work, or I am in the mission field, whatever the case, I want to be at his disposal. You know, it's difficult to explain to people. I feel like the way that I explain to people about how I became a Christian, I worry sometimes that it's not really going to make normal sense to them because so much of what's transpired as God spoke to me was inside. There are really no words to explain. I prayed with these people. They gave me a Bible. I prayed. I read the Bible. God talked to me. My whole life was different. Yeah, you just, you know, you're crazy. That's your problem. No, I'm not. I would like for people to explain it, but, you know, so much of what happens cannot be reduced to human language. It really can't. I need to seek 
the Lord. I want to be at the Lord's disposal 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whether I can explain it or not. This idea of being surrendered to Christ, it doesn't happen all in one life-changing event or all in one day for that matter. It's a marathon, folks. It's a marathon. It's, it, it, it has different implications every day, every year, every situation. Because you are a different person this year than you were last year. You're faced with different challenges. There are different issues before you. Your need for the Lord's help and direction is dramatically different than it has been in time past. And so it's a progressive. As you go forward, you seek the Lord. As we come to these different situations... Jesus tells me where to put the boat, what side to drop the net from. Sometimes we fill the boat with fish. Sometimes we're just going through the storm. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, We all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Right here. We're being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And we're being transformed into the same image. What image? The image of Jesus. You are being transformed into the image of Jesus. This is God's plan. You don't deserve to be transformed into the image of Jesus. You can't earn it. Your good works will not qualify. But you need to be open and willing to participate in the process. You're not going to look like a first century Jewish man. But inside. Inside, you're going to be changed to be like Jesus, to have the nature that God has intended. Because of this plan for us to be transformed into the image of Jesus, to be changed from the inside out, like Peter is being changed. But Peter had many challenges yet to come, didn't he? In fact, some of them pretty daunting. On the night that Jesus was betrayed... Peter betrayed Jesus three times, didn't he? After having told him, I will die for you. Peter says to Jesus, I will die for you. And Jesus in the Gospel of John asks him, really, will you die for me? And three times, Peter denied that he knew Jesus. Folks, it's one thing to fail as a human. Every, everyone is a failure in some ways. Some people just don't know that they're failures. It's another thing altogether to betray the Lord knowing who he is. Peter knew who Jesus was. Peter knew that Jesus was the Son of God. Peter was not confused. And Peter willingly transgressed and willingly denied Jesus. And then, think about that. And then Peter took his failure and surrendered it at Jesus' feet. This is the thing that Judas couldn't do. Judas couldn't do it. Peter has character. Amazing human being. He took his failure of denying Jesus, and he took it to Jesus, and he surrendered it at his feet. And you know, I have to tell you, God worked through that in such a powerful way. In the early chapters of the book of Acts, when the, uh, the Jewish Sanhedrin court arrested the apostles for preaching Jesus and healing the lame man in the temple, and standing before the, with all the pomp and ceremony, the Sanhedrin court with their big hats and their 
beards and in whose power or by what name have you done this miraculous work? They didn't realize. They're talking to the one guy in the whole world who will never deny the name of Jesus. Never, under any circumstances. And he stood right up and told them, let it be known to you that this great work that was done is done in the name of Jesus whom you crucified. Woo! The hair stood up on the back of their neck right then. In 1 Peter, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Amen? Yeah, we've, we've seen those. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What a picture. Folks, who is responsible for Peter's failures? Peter was. I don't imagine he would ever say otherwise. Just like I am responsible for my failure, you are responsible for your failure, and yet God is so amazingly good to us that if we will surrender that failure at his feet, he will even use that to bring us closer to him. 1 Peter 1.13, he says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Get, get your head together and be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is he saying? All of your hope, your hope, rest it entirely on the forgiveness of God that he's going to bring when he comes to us. Not on your being good. Are you reading the Bible an hour a day? Are you spending two hours in prayer? Are you being involved in ministry X, Y, and Z? Rest, do that. If God's directing you, do it. Do it with all your heart. But rest your hope fully upon the grace that God is forgiving. Take some serious character to do that. And it really is a cooperative effort. God is working for our benefit. We don't always see it. We don't, you know can't believe this guy wants me to go out and try and catch some fish in the middle of the day. Whatever. In Galatians chapter 6, in verse 9, it says, Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Folks, we surrender through the blessing. That's easy. We surrender through failure. That's hard. We surrender to the Lord through hardship and through suffering. That's really hard. And I have to tell you today, right now today, at, at this very hour, there are thousands of our brothers and sisters that are facing, facing suffering and death for the name of Jesus Christ. Some of them are small children, and they are being exterminated in Syria and in Iraq. Our sister Asya Bibi, in Pakistan, is, is deathly ill. She's coughing up blood. Uh, they won't put her in a hospital. And if she's not released soon from prison, she's going to die. She's going to die in prison. And, you know, pray for her. And so many thousands of other people whose names we do not know. It says in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you 
to suffer. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This is a promise to those who believe. Why? To what end? First of all, it is the means by which we are identified with Jesus. This world is not my home. This is not the place that I'm supposed to be comfortable and exalted and received by huge crowds to amazing applause and adoration. This is not my home. It's how I follow him. It is a powerful testimony to the world of our attachment to him. That we are unmoved by the things of this world. You know, in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is going to Jerusalem and in every city he stops in. The church has words of knowledge and prophecy that he's going to be arrested. He's going to be bound and handed over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, when he arrives in Jerusalem. And they confront him with these things. And he says, you know, you're breaking my heart. He says in Acts 20, 24, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. But you're going to die. Yeah, hey, we're all going to die. How? How are we going to die? I want to die the way God wants me to die. Exactly. I want to be his witness with my last breath. Finally, this is the method that God uses in refining the life of his disciple through the gauntlet of earthly turmoil. Finally, because, you know, Peter served Jesus. He was crucified upside down on Vatican Hill in Rome, professing the name of Jesus. Church tradition tells us that he spent three days preaching the gospel to people while he was nailed onto that piece of wood. And today, again, our brothers and sisters whose names we don't know, they remember the death of this fisherman who followed Jesus. And you just think about when Jesus met Peter. You're Simon. You shall be called Cephas. Peter surrendered one day at a time. Folks, I'm not here to serve myself. It's attractive. It is attractive to make yourself comfortable, save up your goods and money and retirement and travel, whatever. The, the world is a beautiful place. There's, there's a lot of good things to enjoy here. It's not what I'm here. I'm not here for that. It's not my job. When I realize that God is really here, I see who I am. And you know my selfishness about the least attractive thing about me. If I want what's truly best for my family, for the people of God, and even for myself, I'm going to find a way to surrender unconditionally. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I beg you, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God help us surrender. Amen.
Father, we thank you, Lord, for being here with us today, Lord, for your kindness and your grace towards us. And, Father, that you are so patient with each one of us, Lord. Father, we know that we fail, Lord. We fail you. And, Lord, we so desire to be pleasing to you and fulfill, Lord, your, your hand upon us. Lord, we're confident knowing that as you have begun a good work in us, that you will bring it, Lord, unto that completion at the day of Christ. You are our hope in every situation, Lord, every day. I lift up my brothers and sisters to you this morning, Father, and I know there are people here that are just overwhelmed and struggling, Lord, and they they don't have answers for the situation in their life. And, Lord, they don't know what to do, but, Lord, you do. You know. And, Father, you are our answer. Lord, you are, as we draw near to you and seek you, even though we don't have the information we're looking for, we have you, and you will provide a way. As we're praying together, all of us in prayer, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and the Lord has spoken to your heart, you want to commit your life to him, we we need to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. I'm going to pray a prayer And it's a prayer of surrender to give your life to Christ. If the Lord's spoken to you and you have a desire to be his servant, to follow him, I'd like to ask you to repeat this prayer after me. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. I believe that he rose from the dead. Forgive me for all my failings. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me a new life in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, whether you're...